The original Park House was a magnificent hotel that would have rivaled the Point Farm Hotel. It was well-appointed suites, they had marble fireplaces, and it was quite an extravagant hotel. But it was only open for two seasons because in 1880, for reasons unknown which are rather mysterious, it burnt down and it was a tremendously huge fire because it was seen as far away as Exeter. And somebody on their deathbed about six months later in Detroit confessed to torching it. I'm Mandy Sinclair and on season two of Postcards from Huron County, I'll be delving into some of the industries that developed when settlers arrived in Huron County on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee and neutral peoples in an area that was subject to the dish with one spoon wampum agreement. After a wander in Point Farms and stumbling upon the information plaque about the Point Farms Hotel that stood on the shores of Lake Huron from the late 1800s to 1924, I wanted to look into how tourism started. According to statistics from the Huron County Economic Development Office, the average tourist stay pre-COVID in the summer months in Huron County was one to three nights, and most travelers came from within Ontario. The lake but also local wineries and breweries, summer theater, including the Blythe Festival and the Huron County Playhouse, are big draws to the region. But travelers arriving on the shores of Lake Huron in the 1800s and early 1900s, I'm keen to know where were they coming from? What attracted them to the region? What did they do while vacationing here? And how did they get here? So I'm chatting with historian and former high school teacher, David Yates, about just that. My name is David Yates, and I've taught secondary school Canadian world history to uh, students across Huron County for over 30 years. I've had a column in the uh, local uh, newspapers since 2007, and the column's been on local history, and part of that has been uh, inevitably you come across stories about hotels and steamboats and incidents of days gone by that had to do with the tourist industry in the early days. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining me on Postcards from Heron County. It's great to be back sitting across from you as we prepare to talk about tourism in Heron County. I first became interested in how tourism came to be in Heron County when I was hiking at Point Farms Provincial Park. I spotted a sign indicating the way to the former Point Farms Hotel. And I was amazed. The hotel has quite the history. It burned down in 1872. It was rebuilt two years later and finally torn down in 1924 due to a lumber shortage. Yet the information boards described the grandeur of the hotel like a ballroom with capacity for 150 people, dining room for 300 guests, stables for guest horses, as well as cows for milking. I mean, it just seems like a destination in itself. Hotel owner J.J. Wright on the information board at Point Farms describes the hotel, and I quote, as a farmhouse where fresh products of the dairy, field, and garden coupled with the pure embracing air will form the principal specialty. While the hotel certainly sounds like a destination, what attracted visitors to Huron County area, or was it simply for the Point Farms Hotel? Well, it's a combination of both. The Point Farm Hotel is probably the most noteworthy hotel that we uh, established in the area. And you're quite right. The original Point Farm Hotel was built in 1870. It had accommodation for 60 rooms, but when it burned down in 1872, it was considered so successful. It brought so many people here by rail and steamboat that Josiah Wright decided to build a grander hotel. And as you mentioned in your um, introduction there, that grand hotel was made out of hemlock. It was three stories, had 86 rooms, a glittering ballroom as it was described. And 
it entertained some of the um, wealthiest and richest, most famous people in Central North America at that time. They drew in a lot of people from the uh, American cities, Detroit, Buffalo, Chicago came here. Some of the elite from Toronto, uh, Montreal came here and they made it a destination place. And a lot of it is because the county started to advertise itself as a nice place to have a, you know, enjoy the Enjoy the breezes off the lake, the cool mm -hmm. breezes off the lake at night and the fresh air and the sunshine. And people after the American Civil War had more money, especially the middle classes. The frontier had been settled at that point and they became a leisure class. And here in county in 1858, the railroad came in, so people could come in by rail. And then we had a really efficient steamboat service that started about the 1860s. And so the area had become more accessible to uh, what we would call today tourists, they called them excursionists. And we developed kind of a reputation as being a hospitable place. We were out in the, we were out in the fresh air and mm -hmm. the uh, rural countryside, but we weren't too remote. It wasn't too much like hard scrabble camping and that sort of thing. And we became, for some of the most genteel people at the time, a very pleasant place to spend the summer. And the Point Farm, as you quite rightly mentioned, it, it seated the ballroom, I think, or they could seat, I thought it was more than 300, but in fact, I think in one account said it was 600 people could sit down for tea. Wow. Yeah, it had 86 rooms and accommodation for about 250 people. And oftentimes people would rent rooms, not for a night, not for a week, but they come and they rent rooms for the summer season, which is about eight weeks long. And you have to remember, these were summer hotels. They couldn't be heated in the winter. They were just too massive, and they mm -hmm. wouldn't get the tourist trade that you'd get in the summer. And by our standards, accommodation was pretty primitive. They still had, uh, they didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, Josiah Wright, for the comfort of his guests, had a 16-holer uh, outhouse, basically. And it was the, the Point Farm Hotel was a tremendous boom to the local economy. Not only did they have to have wait staff and dining room staff and uh, housekeepers, but kitchen staff. And he actually imported for a while at the heyday of the Point Farm Hotel in the 1870s and 80s. He actually import, uh, uh, imported what they called at the time colored wait staff to uh, cook in the kitchen and that sort of thing. And not only that, it was uh, the, the, the farmers in the area really made a good living off the Point Farm Hotel on a daily basis at the peak of the summer season, uh, exclusive of even ham and bacon. They had to bring in 100 pounds of fresh meat every day. I can't remember, 40 dozen eggs, and I think one account says they 40 loaves of bread. Wow. And, and uh, it, it, uh, the, keeping that, they, they had 12 milk cows or 16, 16 milk cows on site to provide fresh milk for the hotel. They had a bridal path, a lover's lane. They even had a concession stand where you could buy lemonade and fresh oranges or lemons for a nickel, that sort of thing. And at one point, they had a steam jetty where you can enjoy on the uh, Tommy Wright. It was a steamboat named after the son of Josiah. It was called the Tommy Wright, and you can go on moonlight cruises on a steam jetty at the uh, Point Farm Hotel. And it was quite the extensive operation until about the 1890s. And uh, it was so successful that in the 1870s, in 1875 to be exact, the town of Goddard decided to capitalize on that tourist trade. And they built a Grand Hotel in 1879. It was opened for the first time, known as the Park House. But today we associate the Park House with its present venue. Mm -hmm. But the Park House, the original Park House, 
was a magnificent hotel that would have rivaled the Point Farm Hotel. It had two. It had a north south uh, tower and a south tower, but unfortunately, it and it had uh, it was well appointed uh, suites. They had marble fireplaces, and it was quite oh, wow. an extravagant hotel. But it was only open for two seasons because in 1880, for reasons unknown, which are rather mysterious, it burnt down. It burnt down right to the ground. It was totally razed. And what we now associate with the park house, that was the uh, hotel owner's house. So Captain Marlton, who ran the park house hotel, eventually used his residence as a hotel. Mm-hmm. And it became known as the Park House. But the original Park House wasn't that building. The original Park House was a hotel that burned down after only about two years in operation. It was a tremendously huge fire because it was seen as far away as Exeter. Oh. Yeah. And somebody on their deathbed about six months later in Detroit confessed to uh, torching it. Uh, uh, we don't know if that's true. That was a deathbed confession. I have no idea who asked him to torch it, if that's true. But it was, seems to have been torched, and because it was in November and the fires were out in the fireplaces and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. it's kind of a suspicious fire. But it was never rebuilt. It's just the name carried on into the house that we think of as the Park House today. Another hotel, about 1895, that was between Godridge and the Point Farm Hotel that tried to capitalize on the tourism and the excursionists was the Medicine Park Hotel. Mm-hmm. And it began a 36-room hotel in 1895, and it became, uh, it had 36 rooms, and like the Point Farm, not quite as extravagant as the Point Farm, but it was closer to town. In fact, they advertised itself as being within earshot of the town bell at the courthouse. Uh, Railroad station, after 1907, the railroad, the CPR railroad went through, and passengers or excursionists could get off at the Menasatung stop and there would be a, a horse and wagon waiting to take them to the Menasatung Hotel. Where was the Menasatung stop? It, well, today there's a little wood post marker and it's mm-hmm. and when you go across the uh, CPR bridge, going north mm-hmm. across the CPR bridge, and as you're rounding the corner, you'll see a little stump that yes. says Menaset. And there was just a little whistle stop there where you'd stop and get out and there'd be a horse and buggy that would uh, take you away and your luggage, take you back to the Menasatung Park Hotel. Menasatung. That's so Menasatung interesting. Um, I have a friend who has a cottage not far from there. And in the morning before the boats and stuff come out, you can hear the, the courthouse bells chiming the quarter hour and the top of the hour. Yeah, and so it gave uh, <laughs> people who were there you that wanted mm-hmm. to be out in the country, they wanted to be on the lakeside in the in the uh, fresh breezes and the wilderness and all that stuff experience, but they were close enough, and they knew they were close enough to the town of Godridge that they mm-hmm. could go in and spend their days shopping or visiting or doing whatever they chose to do. So with the, like you mentioned at the Point Farms that they would rent for the summer, like the guests would rent for the summer. Yeah, that wasn't uncommon. That's right. So would they stay for the whole summer or was it kind of like a cottage in that they would come and go back to their hometown, do some business, come back? Could they invite guests to to stay in their suite? It was a combination. Once again, some people stayed for the whole summer. Mm -hmm. And and, and a good example of that is the next hotel or the other hotel that started about 1902-1903. It was the Hotel Sunset here in Mm -hmm. Goddard. And uh, a lot of families would rent, especially if you're middle class or upper middle class families, you could rent a room or a suite for the summer, usually about eight or nine weeks. Mm-hmm. 
starting in June in uh, the Hotel Sunset. They were $25 to $30 a week. And that doesn't sound like much, but for an average Ford worker working on the line in the 1920s, he, it was um, comparable to a week's salary. Okay. So the $25 they spent for renting a room uh, for a week times eight, that would have been comparable to two months' salary mm-hmm. for a typical working-class guy, family. Mm-hmm. The, the, these rooms kind of catered to the middle and upper middle classes. And uh, you could, I suppose you could rent suites and you could do what you want. Some families probably stayed just overnight or a few days. Some people might have stayed just the week and some people stayed throughout the whole summer. I know the summer of 1877 at the Point Farm Hotel, uh, Josiah Wright called it his banner year. And he said in the summer season that year, he had 1900, over 1900 uh, overnight guests, not at one time, yeah. but over, throughout the summer season. At any one time, he, his 86 rooms, he kind of advertised could accommodate about 250 people. So that's a substantial number of people. And some of them would have came, some would have went after a few mm-hmm. days. You wouldn't get one night stays because like travel was just too laborious, too mm-hmm. tiring to just say, we'll pop up for a night. Yeah, absolutely. So you were getting people that their typical stay, I'm going to guess, would be a week to eight weeks. And you had mentioned to me in a recent conversation that there was not the royal family, but someone with royal ties that stayed at the Point Farms Hotel. Is that connected? I'm sure there were. Uh, we had two presidential visits at the Point Farm Hotel. Just, uh, James Garfield stayed there with his wife before he became president. Mm-hmm. And in fact, his widow continued to come, even after he was assassinated in 1881, his widow continued to come up and she spent time at the Point Farm Hotel. The other, uh, the other president was Chester Arthur, who is believed to have stayed at the Point Farm Hotel. William Tecumseh, General Sherman in 1881, probably the most, at that time, the, uh, besides General Grant, mm-hmm. probably the most famous living American commander. Uh, he enjoyed his visit here in 1866 when he first came on an official visit so much that in 1881, he spent time at the Point Farm Hotel a few days probably getting away trying to Mm -hmm. hide out because he was in charge of president garfield's security when he was shot and he was kind of under some scrutiny about how come the president Mm -hmm. wasn't adequately protected and so he may have come up here just to avoid public scrutiny Mm -hmm. and he enjoyed his visit here of course i mean here in county in the summer is the best time isn't it I know oh, I never you, want to leave. <laughs> I know you can't beat here in County in the summer. No. And that's why we have people flocking to our shores. Exactly. Even still. Even still. We see great railway stations, although sadly no longer in use, and remnants of former stations across the county in places like McGaw. But the point at the Point Farm Hotel, uh, there was a sizable livery stable. So yep. it leads me to believe, did guests hail from the region or were they traveling by train to get here? Uh, I would imagine that the majority of guests came here by rail, especially the ones that were the well-to-do, well-paying guests. Mm -hmm. Anywhere farther than, well, from around London and Windsor, Detroit, Toronto, they would have come here by rail. Another means of transportation that uh, we shouldn't forget about is steamboat. Mm -hmm. Because the steamboats, we, uh, we had a regular steamboat service here. And in fact, the summer season starting in 1912 used to be said to be gone in Goddard's with the sound of the Greyhound whistle. The Greyhound was a steamer when it started coming in June 1912. And it, uh, it used to bring the guests to the Sunset Hotel that stayed for the season. And 
uh, whenever you heard the sound of the steam or the Greyhound steam whistle coming into the harbor, a lot of people said that's the beginning of the summer season. And so the guests would get off. And then they had a really neat thing, which was on the social calendar of Huron County at the time, it was a significant event was they'd have a four-day cruise where the Greyhound would then take passengers. And the Greyhound took hundreds of people every week, for, in, in, in usually in June. They packed the steamer full of people and they'd take them to Detroit for four days and then they'd take them back home. They advertised it in London and, mm-hmm. and Waterloo. But the vast majority of people that came by the steamer uh, on, this, on the Greyhound were probably people from the area and they'd pay for passage and you can go to Detroit and spend four days in Detroit or whatever when Detroit was at its height remember in uh-huh. the 1910s and 1920s I mean that sounds like my dream weekend away Detroit in the 1910s or 1920s and it would have been everything would have mm-hmm. been fresh and clean and exciting for people who didn't usually travel more than a mile or two away from their uh-huh. homes and all well and completely different and completely different that's right you yeah. would have seen the motor like it was the auto capital of the world and all those beautiful buildings were being erected in detroit and it was one of the largest cities in north america mm-hmm. and the excitement of going to detroit at the time would attract hundreds of people for a long weekend who would go down there maybe catch a ball game um the theaters, see live there. theaters there at mm-hmm. the time uh you can imagine the, the music clubs and that sort of thing yeah. that they would have enjoyed and they come back after four days and people write about it in there and in, in, in once in a while see a reference to the Greyhound, uh, a trip on the Greyhound in uh, individual diaries and stories and personal accounts and that sort of thing. If you can imagine, during the First World War, uh, when they really needed industrial help, a lot of people just got on the Greyhound and went and got work in Detroit and stayed there. That wasn't uncommon before the Mm -hmm. war and then during the war, of course, a lot of young men wanted to avoid conscription. Yeah. So in 1917 when the conscription or 1918 uh over conscription they made a point of saying that they weren't going to be checking age ids and stuff like that so they're clearly gearing it to young men that were Mm -hmm. thinking i don't know if i want to take my chances overseas i'll go to detroit Mm -hmm. the other thing that brought people to town which is something we kind of another tradition that died out with radio was chautauqua in the 1920s they had uh it it was something that started in the u.s in the late 19th century where the Chautauqua, well, they used to, they used to advertise themselves as bringing the world to you. And before radio and talking film and movies, the Chautauquas were this great, big, huge traveling entertainment caravan. They brought to town entertainment, um, magic shows. They brought lectures. They used to call it a Chautauqua course. They wanted to stress that this is educational, but they bring plays, Shakespearean plays, comedies, and it'd be a four or five day extravaganza and people used to come in the 1920s. In fact, the um, Mr. Lee, uh, the Hotel Sunset, was uh, like to promote the Chautauquas because, of course, people would come for Chautauqua Week and stay at his hotel. Mm-hmm. And they used to advertise in the local newspapers, it's Chautauqua Week, so you want to get your, you know, get dressed up in your refinement because we're going to have all these out-of-town visitors coming to our Chautauqua course, which was sometimes at Harbor Park. Sometimes it was at one time, I think it was on the ground of the Hotel Sunset or at Victoria Park and uh, they used to travel around and there'd be uh, it was uh, under the Chautauqua tent and they had all day entertainment into the night and it would last for about five days throughout the 1920s and everybody enjoyed the Chautauqua course you paid a little bit of money but people seemed to be willing mm-hmm. to do that wow but you also mentioned about 
Oscar Edward Fleming. Yeah, O.E. Fleming. How did he get to town? Well, he uh, purchased uh, one of the oldest properties in the Huron Tract. It's on the north shore of the north shore of the Maitland River, right at the mouth of the uh, Maitland River. It's that beautiful white house that was originally the hunting lodge of Baron de Toil, and then it became uh, John Galt the Fourth's home, and then it became A.Y. Atrill's home, and then at some point in the early 20th century, Oscar Edward Fleming bought it about 1910, 1915. And he was a industrial magnate from Windsor, Ontario. He wanted to buy, he bought that as a summer home for his family. And he was in the know, he was connected with some of the most influential people in Detroit, like Henry Ford brought his mm -hmm. yacht up here and visited that wow. home, which is now owned by Keith and Joanne Holman, and they're very proud of that story. And um, he even had a rail, there was a rail siding, probably by Meneset, where he had his own rail car, and his family, um, his family uh, would come up on that rail car and maybe park or drop them off, and mm -hmm. they'd spend the summer, unlike here in Shores, here in Goddard. Amazing. where they had a nice commanding view of the harbor and beautiful view and mm -hmm. and the town that's right wow interesting as we've talked about the point farms hotel wasn't the only hotel in the area there was the ritz hotel in bayfield with the building still standing um not the original no not the original building the uh ritz hotel started off at, well it started off originally as a royal but it was like a uh, stage hotel not really touristy, but it was a stage hotel. And then the late 19th century became the Queen's Hotel. And that's when it became a little bit more touristy because Bayfield, like Goddard, was becoming known as a, play, a destination locate, a vacation destination. Mm -hmm. And once again, we get a lot of people from Michigan and Detroit coming to Bayfield. And the hotel thrived. Um, it did very, very well. In fact, it was considered one of the um, uh, most luxurious hotels in southwestern Ontario at the time and then in the 1920s a Martha Ritz bought it. Uh, you might think the, mm -hmm. it was like the Ritz Hotel in, in, yeah. in New York but actually it was somebody named Ritz who actually bought it and she changed the name from the Queen's Hotel about 1920 to the Ritz Hotel and in mm -hmm. the 20s and 30s you start to get automobile traffic coming into the area and they would stop at the Ritz Hotel and they'd stay for a week or, a, or and then mm -hmm. you start to get the overnight you know the overnight mm -hmm. Uh, tourists that are passing through the original uh, Ritz Hotel. It burnt in a massive fire in 1940s, Labor Day weekend, 1947. And um, in fact, there's even a color film of that somewhere on Facebook I've seen. Oh, wow. In fact, that's what started the uh, Bayfield Fire Department because after the Ritz Hotel burned down, they thought we better have a professional fire service. Mm-hmm. And but it was rebuilt, and the building that's there now is the rebuilt Ritz Hotel. It was much reduced and truncated in size. Okay. But it remained a hotel until about 1966, and then it went through a variety of owners mm -hmm. and a variety of functions. And now it's serving as the virtual high school in mm -hmm. Bayfield. My actual job is in public relations, and I love the history of advertising, particularly of travel destinations. In my research for this interview, I found a booklet promoting the hotel sunset and you know that we still see like here in county producing like booklets and Goddard yeah. as well like tourist guides right but I found also an ad placed in the Goddard star in 1932 promoting a stay at the hotel sunset and really emphasizing their dining services so meals made with vegetables from the garden and fresh fish from the lake 
and boasting that Godridge, and I quote, is the most healthful of summer resorts. Were locals the key market? I don't think so. I, I mean, it, it's great that he posted that in the local paper because mm-hmm. presumably the local papers were mailed out to other places in the province. Uh. But actually, Mr. Lee was kind of unique in that he advertised on radio, WJR Radio in Detroit mm-hmm. in the 1930s. He advertised the Hotel Sunset. So clearly his target audience, his target market was beyond just here in county. And um, it seemed to work because the 1920, like I said, the 1920s and 30s, the Prussian it slows down a bit. But the 1920s was kind of a heyday for tourism in the area. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, advertising on the radio, that was a unique thing for a Canadian hotel to do in a small town. But he had the vision to kind of do that. Yeah. And uh, it seemed to work in attracting people to town. Now the Greyhound passenger service steamer that kind of ended in the late 1920s 1927 1928 but they always tried to entice a steamer to make the regular run to Goderidge again and when they advertised those fresh vegetables and all that stuff once again it was a boon to the local economy and and the ice cream came from Bissett's Bissett's ice cream at the top of the hill over here in Salford Mm -hmm. was a real treat at the time and of course dining was such a formal thing especially at night because at the hotel sunset like the Point Farm Hotel it was formal dining. Dinner jackets, mm-hmm. evening jackets were um, uh, required. Um, mothers would do up their children's hair and get them all dressed up. And it was a real laborious, it was a real task preparing for dinner to get ready for the night because everybody would eat at the same time. All the guests in the hotel, oh. would get, you didn't go down just at, and decide to eat when you wanted. Mm-hmm. I think they had a I think at the peak it had about, I, I can't remember if it was 10 tables or 16 tables, but anyway, they had several tables and everyone ate together. So everybody, the families would all be at their table and with another family. Mm-hmm. And that's how you got to know the guests, became kind of acquainted with the guests and mm-hmm. everybody had to look their best and be on their best P's and Q's and manners. And that type of formal dining is one of the reasons, you know, I mean, you had to have a lot of leisure time to be able to do that. You just couldn't stumble out of an automobile carrying your bags after an eight-hour ride and expect to go up and prepare for dinner. Yeah, absolutely. But we don't see this type of tourism where, you know, the formal attire and like those, I mean, the hotel, Sunset, and Point Farms no longer exist. When and why did this form of tourism end? Well, the technology that created tourism, the transportation revolution, mm-hmm basically destroyed the old-fashioned seasonal tourist business because people started uh, people started to buy cottages and, and earlier than that the tourist trade kind of moved out of here in county because by the late uh, by the night 1890s and early 20th century the Muskoka starts to open up it starts to become settled and the Americans discover the Muskokas the fishing and the uh, venues in the Muskoka that get back to nature and so we kind of it started to ebb even then but then uh, people started traveling by automobile. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the 1930s, during the Depression, there is a big bump by 1932 in the tourist, uh, or a big decline in tourism starting about the 1930s of the Depression. People didn't have money, but people became more mobile because they had their own automobiles. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you had to stay somewhere for an entire week or an entire season, uh, you don't have to do that anymore. And the other thing, people started after the Second World War in North America, became more affluent for the first time. And this might seem incredible when you look at the price of lakeside real estate today, Mm -hmm. but working people for the first time after the Second World War, wages were high enough that they could buy their own cottages. 
along the lakeshore. A lot of the cottages between Grand Bend and Amberley were originally, you know, began in the late 40s and end of mm-hmm. the 50s. And for the first time, average people can afford a second home. And they didn't need to stay at a, even an overnight hotel anymore. And then people became, as I said, more, they start to travel further and further. If you're the Labats in London, you don't have to go to Goderidge anymore because mm-hmm. that's no longer the, I mean, Goderidge is no longer, the, it's just an hour away, but you can go into the Muskokas and have mm-hmm. your, buy a bigger house on Manitoulin Island or the Muskokas yeah. and get there just as easily as a few years before you get to someplace like Goderidge. The uh, Grand Hotel type hotel trade really began to die out after the, and, it's, and it dropped dramatically. Rail traffic, passenger service uh, isn't as, as common. Pa- taking the train isn't as common as it was before the Second World War. Mm-hmm. But once again, it's our own affluence. People mm-hmm. can buy cars and they can buy cottages. And when they buy cars, they're much more, you're not reliant on train schedules anymore to get from point A to point B. You just get in the car and go. Mm-hmm. And you can go further, uh, faster than you could by old fashioned train travel. But there was, um, I remember you mentioning to me that day travel was a thing in, to Goderidge from places like London, is that correct, on the yeah, train? Yeah, and, and you could, I, I, I think when you talked about, uh, one of the traditions that the Grand Trunk Railway and then later the CPR used to have, mm-hmm. they used to have these excursions. Mm-hmm. And the whole city, when it was, say, the Civic Holiday Weekend or the Bank Holiday Weekend, they used yep. to call it, or the Victoria Day Weekend, they'd advertise a day, they'd put special trains on and advertise for a family for a dollar twenty-five a person or whatever, and you could take the family up to Goderidge and spend the day in Goderidge, and then you take the train back at night or Port Stanley or areas like that, and they'd mm-hmm. advertise in the paper. And that's where we'd have our posters here because you go if you're standing on the platform at the Grand Trunk or the CPR station, the Grand Trunk like we're in here now, there was the the walls would have been littered with posters, posters. and mm-hmm. and that would have told you that would have advertised excursions. Mm-hmm for here or there and I remember I think in about 1860 something the city of London one of the excursions for the city of London that they advertised was that they were going to come to Goddard's and they'd put special cars and trains on and everybody in the city that wanted to go to Goddard's would assemble at the train station and get on with their picnic baskets and enjoy the day Amazing. in Goddard's and then turn around late at night and go home and they always had excursions on holidays every year every major holiday they had excursions they'd put on extra chains if there was an orangeman's day parade somewhere in the area they put extra trains on for that event they put extra trains on for victoria day or Mm -hmm. or or whatever the occasion would be and people moved around like we really Canada really was built by the railroads because they helped us move around and get to know each other and connected us with each other Mm -hmm. in a similar ad that I found about the hotel sunset there was reference to fire safety equipment in the hotel and not having to worry about fire hazards what challenges did the hotels face well remember everyone smoked in their rooms mm-hmm. <laughs> okay smoking and drunkenness were went mm-hmm. hand in hand at that time and it was uh, uh in a lot of old homes I've even seen cigar ash burns on the wood floors and in old buildings you see that that was quite common and firefighting equipment was a little bit more primitive than we're used to today. And in fact, fire awareness and fire safety in hotels is something. In fact, I can't remember which one of the hotels, but their fire safety uh, uh, a ladder was basically a rope that they'd throw out the side of the door there. And you'd have to, if you were on the second or third floor, you'd have mm-hmm. to shimmy <laughs> down a rope, which isn't everybody's idea of a, the best way to escape a fire. They mm-hmm. also, like the British Exchange Hotel, they advertised that they had these water grenades. 
and what they were were glass balls filled with water. And if there is a fire on your floor, you'd throw these glass balls filled with water at the fire. Would have been great fun, but I don't know how effective <laughs> they would have been. No. <laughs> and uh, and as you could tell, because well, the uh, original park uh, house burned down by mm-hmm. massive fire. The uh, Point Farm Hotel, the original one, was burnt by fire. Um, the Manasatung Hotel eventually was destroyed by fire, I think, in 1936. And the original Ritz Hotel was destroyed by fire in 1947. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is they just weren't very aware mm-hmm. of fire safety, or if they did, they were pretty careless because, as I said, a lot of these hotels were supposed, like the Point Farm Hotel was supposed to be a dry hotel. But uh, there used to be a winter hotel where you could get a drink, which was just off the property. And the rumor was probably true that Mr. Wright had an interest, a financial interest in the winter hotel. So even though you couldn't drink because you want to be a good example to your family that was there, mm-hmm. if you, the winter hotel was within staggering distance of the Point Farm Hotel and and of course, a lot of hotels, uh, whether they were tourist hotels or not, they always had a tavern or a bar. And uh, even during Prohibition, you're always seeing hotel keepers, hotel owners being charged under the uh, Liquor Act. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the other thing that nobody thought about was telling people, "Not you can't smoke in a room." That would have been just absolutely rude, to, uh, unheard of, to tell mm-hmm. people they couldn't smoke. So people would go up and smoke in their room, fall asleep, or playing, falling asleep, ashes dropped everywhere, and mm-hmm. just, uh, they really were a hazard that people had to worry about if you were a traveler. That was one of the hazards of staying mm-hmm. at one of those summer hotels, those frames, and they were all frame, yeah. you know, because, and uh, they'd go up and they went up in flames pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting, um, too, that the Point Farms Hotel was like torn down in 1924 due to a lumber shortage so it's really interesting how the hotels were and then they were repurposed and they were mm-hmm. tearing apart exactly and, re- and the Balmoral hotel at one time it had the largest bar in canada no way uh, yeah it had the, but it wasn't i mean it was the of narcisse canton mm-hmm. uh, known as the wizard of saint joseph who wanted to build the sea lawrence seaway decades mm-hmm. before it was actually built but he wanted to go through saint joseph to Mm-hmm. I think it was Lake Erie. Yeah. And he built this in preparation for the trade that would be coming through there, the tra- the traffic and trade that would be coming through there, he built the Balmoral Hotel. And it had a samples room. It had, and the samples room are what, not alcohol samples, but traveling salesmen. Mm-hmm. They were a big part of the, uh, they weren't tourists, but they were a big part of the traveling trade. And mm-hmm. they were kind of important. Like the hotels are really important. Uh, parts of the town at one time because they just weren't places where you like now a hotel you go and you stay the night and then you go on yeah but then they'd advertise themselves as the hotels like the Balmoral did as um, play like traveling salesmen stuff that you couldn't get in the stores and shops in Goddard mm-hmm. or Clinton traveling salesmen would bring to you so especially items like bonnets and hats the latest fashions from paris or london or new york mm-hmm. traveling salesmen could bring them and they'd set say that okay we're going to be here in such and such a date for anyone that wants to come and have a look at our wares and they'd rent a samples room in a hotel and the samples room a lot of hotels had four six eight depending on their size the samples rooms where salesmen would be located for the uh for the day or two mm-hmm. and you go and look at what they had and and um, you'd purchase whatever you couldn't get in the shop from the traveling salesman and the other people that use the uh, uh, medical people but uh, <laughs> if you needed a specialist or a dentist uh, not every town had a dentist 
So a dentist mm -hmm. would say, okay, I'm going to rent a room in the Dominion Hotel in Zurich, or I'm going to be at the Queen's Hotel in Brussels on such and such a date. Come and see me with your medical issues or your dental issues. And dentists operated out of hotel rooms. If you couldn't get to a hospital, they'd come up here hmm. and rent a hotel room. And they'd tell you that they were here. Wigs, people that went were going bald, or especially women going bald from whatever, uh, they were very popular. Um, oracles wow. were very popular. Um, people would say that, uh, uh, and, and they'd invent this lineage for themselves, that they were Egyptian. They, they'd mm -hmm. rent a room in a hotel and say, okay, the mystical miss whoever is going to be there and she'll tell your fortune or something like yeah. that and people would line up to hear her tell your, your fortune from a hotel room mm -hmm. so the hotels were kind of really important bits of cultural social history mm -hmm. in addition to the usual drinking and 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 overnight stays and that yeah. sort of thing well this has been a really interesting conversation as i knew it would so thank you so much for oh my pleasure for coming out and chatting with me again oh you're very welcome glad thank to you do so it. much oh thank you postcards from huron county is made possible thanks to the huron heritage fund distributed through the huron county museum the museum is one of my favorite spots in huron county for their interesting exhibitions and thursday evening international movie screenings and also thanks to Community Futures Huron. The folks at Community Futures Huron have been supportive not only of my idea, but many others in the community. The Village Toy Castle in Brucefield, the Bayfield River Roads Brewery in Hops, Ice Culture in Hensel, and the Sloman School on Wheels in Clinton, to name a few. And they are truly good folks. According to the Conference Board of Canada, for every $1 that Community Futures Huron invests, Another $4.50 of economic activity is generated locally. Find out more about how they may be able to support your ideas at cfhuron.ca. That's cfhuron.ca. Postcards from Huron County is produced and hosted by Mandy Sinclair with audio production by Clint Mackey at Faux Pop Media in Goderidge. 